Hello and welcome to the C21 podcast. My name's Jonathan Webdale. We hope you're safe and well wherever you may be. Today we hear from Johnny Webb, Chief Executive of Hillary and Chelsea Clinton's production company Hidden Light, launched earlier this year together with Sir Richard Branson's son Sam. Lena Minifi, Chief Executive of Vancouver-based Stories First Productions, discusses the changing fortunes of Indigenous-owned indies. And former Discovery Commissioner Mark Proctor talks about the challenges of debuting new UK factual venture Big Little Fish amidst the pandemic. Hillary Clinton, her daughter Chelsea and producer Sam Branson teamed up at the end of last year to launch Hidden Light Productions, a new premium content maker with former Virgin Media TV chief Johnny Webb on board as chief executive and ex-MGM Revolt Media and NBC Universal Global President Roma Khanna as executive chair. The former US Secretary of State's new company arrived on the scene with a straight-to-series commission from US tech giant Apple and already has a number of others in the bag. She and Chelsea are due to speak as part of the Royal Television Society's Cambridge Convention later this month. Johnny Webb, who previously helmed Branson's Sundog Pictures, spoke to Clive Whittingham ahead of the event about the company's aims and its latest show, If I Could Tell You Just One Thing, which debuts on YouTube this week. I'm Johnny Webb. I'm the CEO of Hidden Light Productions, which is a production company that we formed last year, founded by Hillary and Chelsea Clinton and Sam Branson. We don't think of ourselves as British or American. We are a global company with um, working out of London, New York and LA uh, in scripted and unscripted. So uh, the television industry will know a bit about the sort of films and documentaries and projects that you and Sam have been involved in before. Why do Hillary and Chelsea want uh, a production company? What's the, the aim and the goal of the company? Why has it been set up? It's a great question, and I'm looking forward to them answering that at Cambridge, but on their behalf. So they are uh, very passionate about elevating people's stories. And, you know, the name was very carefully chosen. You know, everything we do in scripted and unscripted will be driven by great characters, whether, you know, documentary or fiction. And it's about finding those characters with extraordinary stories but also with their own light that they're bringing to a situation you know whether that's hope resilience um love in in the darkest of places um so uh, they are really passionate about elevating people's stories and it's great you know to talk to them and and uh some of the projects that will announce in the autumn where you know hillary uh, was saying you know wow i've got my own production company now you know this is a story i'm really passionate about and it's something that actually we can directly bring to bring to screen who um who are you directing the content at um broadcaster wise who are you, who are you pitching you I, I know you've got a project for youtube which we're, we're going to talk about is it very yeah. much that sort of area or is it is it netflix and high-end stuff like that is it linear broadcasters where are you guys shooting so it's all premium so it's all premium and obviously we're doing scripted now as well we're doing a lot in the us so as you know we've got our gutsy women series for apple tv plus um so we are doing a lot in in the us but also you know we are we're a london team in unscripted i've got siobhan working with me now from channel four who's wonderful and you know i think it's really important that that emotionally we're invested in the uk but also from a business perspective we've got the best rights regime in the world at least for the time being so it's important for us commercially to be developing for the uk and creating ip as well so you know i I genuinely we've 
set the business up to be genuinely global. I think we're all, all of us as founders are passionate about looking for stories uh, around the world. You know, the, the Clinton and the Branson brands have global residents. And I, and I think, you know, you think of the work that the secretary has done herself as secretary of state. Yeah, I think there's lots of opportunities for us to work, you know, in Africa and the Middle East and Asia. Um, so I, I think it's genuinely global in, in approach. Do, uh, like you say, you've got a, a series with, with Apple TV Plus and, um, and with YouTube. Do those sort of platforms offer, I don't know, greater freedom, greater scope or, or bigger budgets for the sort of projects that you're looking for than, than a traditional linear broadcaster? Yeah, for sure. So, um, you know, the, the, the scale is huge and the budgets are appropriate for the vision of, of those productions. And it certainly, you know, in terms of us doing premium storytelling, everything looks amazing. And we spend a lot of money making everything look premium. But also, it's not just about the look. You know, premium, I think, is also about layers of storytelling and, and the sort of nuance of how you tell those stories. So they're, you know, smart and accessible. You know, and yeah, it's those two things in combination. I, something that I'm very, very, I've always been very passionate about is, you know, telling stuff with genuine substance, but is respectful of people coming home and doing a hard day's work and, you know, making making them entertainment first and really accessible for people at the same time. And, and those two values should never be in conflict. They don't need to be in conflict in my mind. It's like you can do things that feel really meaty and really smart, um, but they're a, a great watch and they make you laugh and they make you cry. And there's genuine light and shade in every story. Is that my next question? Is you, You've possibly addressed it there, but how, because obviously premium factual now that with the streamers in particular is a really buzzy genre and there's a, there's a lot of it around. I mean, obviously you can debate what's premium and what's not, but how do you, other than the names that are attached to the production company, how do you go about cutting through first of all with the commissioners and then once you've got that foot in the door in the commission with the audience who are being besieged with all of the, all of this unscripted content um well it's interesting isn't it so i i, I think we're, we're obviously doing a lot with talent and that's a really really important way to cut through and that's especially true in the us but i think it's also true in the uk so i think it's 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 bringing talent to the table and and that was hugely appealing for me personally and for roma Carno, you know who's my partner in the business who's the executive chair and, and is running scripted out of LA you know the idea of what the what the the secretary Chelsea and Sam could bring in terms of names and their contact book and the access that they bring to us is is hugely appealing so that I think that makes a, a big difference and it's also about the sort of scope that our founders have that get us into spaces and issues in the world that give us a really unique take on it sorry that's a bit elliptical because there are things that I can't quite talk about yet you know what it's like <laughs> but 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 you know you, you know what it's like when somebody's pitching you an idea that actually they have a visceral connection to that territory or that story or that person that you're pitching it's really powerful and so it just it gives us that I think having the substance that we have with the founders behind us gives us a, a, a fair wind let's say we are talking on a day when um, our news feed was led by another new hire by you guys Lydia Arden yeah. from from Avalon as uh, head of production tell us a bit about her and also is that the staffing up done are we or are we expecting you to, to to further expand as we move forward so um 
um, very excited about um, Lydia joining us. And, you know, there's been so much debate, hasn't there? And you've been part of that debate about recognising the role of production in the whole process, about the impact of COVID on the work that the production teams are doing, because it's a whole other day job. And they've done an absolutely, you know, the teams that we've got done an absolutely amazing job because we continued filming pretty much throughout. Um, and um, I know because she's been working to Claire Featherston, who's our COO. So, you know, Lydia can't come fast enough because we've got a lot on. And it's, you know, it's the same for every producer, isn't it? Working remotely, working through COVID. But, you know, we set up a new business in the middle of the pandemic. And, you know, we've got 50 staff in the US at the moment. So there's a lot going on. So it's going to be amazing to have Lydia come in and help us steer through that. And one of the things that we loved about her is the fact that she's worked, you know, she's done quite a lot of production in the US. And, you know, she's, she understands how the rhythm of that business and um, she can really hit the ground running. So, you know, fantastic to have her. And she Vaughan's been with us um, a short while already. She's wonderful and um, just getting her feet under the table. So Unscripted's feeling like it's in a really good place at the moment. And I think the next the next big push for us, and certainly for Roma, is to build the scripted team out of, um, out of the US. So that's our next focus. How has it been launching? I mean, you and you and Sam did have a, a production company before this, which folded in. So it's not, you know, you, you hit the ground running to a certain extent. But how has it been launching this new company, like you said, during a pandemic and trying to get things up and running with all the uncertainty that that brings to a production company? Um, I think the dream was so big for what we wanted to do with Hidden Light and yet sort of trying to do it every, everything from each of our individual kitchen tables was slightly, there was a slight kind of, um, what's the word, you know, counterpoint to, to, to those two things. But, you know, all credit to the team because we've all worked incredibly hard to make it happen. I, I, and, and of course, there are some silver linings. I've actually really, we've done a huge amount of pitching, you know, as a, as a business that wants to be global and wants to work with all the big global networks and streamers. The idea that we've all moved to virtual pitching, of course, has been incredibly helpful because prior to the pandemic, we did most of it on biannual trips to to LA and New York and so that's opened up the pitching process and it's working really really well I mean I actually really like pitching on Zoom I think it's inclusive and everybody you know it's you can still create the same sort of theatre in the in the pitch room that you need to um, but it's just much easier for us to have those conversations and meetings with people so I, I think that's been really really great that said I'm absolutely we've got so much going on in the States at the moment I'm absolutely desperate to get over there and you know be part of the filming process and just do all those good things that you do which is connecting people together and building a sort of good spirit on each of the production. So I've missed, I have missed the sort of physical element of it, but hopefully we'll be back in the room before long. But, and then like, like all of us, it's going to end up being a sort of hybrid. That's interesting. That hybrid word is interesting. Do you, because I was going to say, do you think some of this like Zoom pitching and stuff is here to, here to stay now? Or do you think we'll yeah. all get back on our planes and, and be as we were before? I think, I think, I think it's definitely hybrid, isn't it? I'm really keen for people to get back in the office now, but I suspect none of us will do more than two days a week in the office and so which is what I think most people are doing isn't it two to three days a week so I think that hybrid approach is really good it means we have to change our working day so that office time is almost all social time for us coming together and then home time is more kind of research and you know the quieter time that you spend going through things and doing your own thinking um, and there's no substitute for being on the ground and being with teams to, to help you know get things going and get things started and just having you know having those nice personal conversations around the edges of pitches is also important but so i think it's, it's definitely going to be hybrid isn't it I, I can't see it going back exclusively to the way it was 
let's talk about some of the the projects that you that yeah. you can talk about. And um, if I could tell you just one thing is uh, a project that's been sort of kicking around in in various forms for a little while now. We've spoken about it before, but is is being realised uh, now on YouTube and is is premiering very shortly. Why don't you give us the background to that and and what it's all about and what people can expect from that? Yeah, so it was a book written by a very good friend of ours called Richard Reed, which um, was something that he wanted to do, asking um, over a hundred people for one piece of advice that they would pass on to the next generation and that became a bestseller and we pitched that to YouTube uh, two or three years ago and we did a special with Priyanka Chopra for International Women's Day um, which was hugely successful and set a template that I think speaks very much to Hidden Light actually which is you know it's it's fun and vibrant and full of energy but in that special we had Simone Biles talking about being a survivor of sexual assault you know as part of the US athletics team and that was the first time that she'd spoken about it on camera and it was incredibly moving actually so I was totally thrilled when YouTube and Luke Hyams came back to me out of the London team and said actually we want to take it to series with a UK creator YouTube creator called Patricia Bright um, and well by the time this goes out it will have it will be um, on her channel and it's really lovely Clive I'm really really proud of it four episodes three extraordinary women in each episode and you know Miss Michelle Visage and Dame Floella Benjamin and Le- the supermodel Leomi Anderson and I mean uh, DJ Cuppy um, there's some really really great conversations and again it's Patricia's brilliant it's really fun and accessible but actually you've got Dame Floella Benjamin talking about the racism she experienced when she first landed in the UK as a child or Leomi Anderson's talking about how women need to stand up and talk about what they're worth in their careers particularly black women and her experience of, be- of being a model and fighting for her value you know so it's great it's great it's um Roma talks a lot about broccoli and chocolate and about being entertainment first and you know always putting the chocolate at the front <laughs> but actually it's great to be able to do that and make something really watchable but actually do something with a bit of substance as well so I'm really thrilled with it and love working for YouTube because they are fantastic partners they really supportive through Covid we filmed this right in the heat of the January lockdown you know and it was tough it's tough and it's stressful because you're trying to keep your staff safe everybody's a bit anxious you're trying to keep your contributors safe and actually you're trying to create some energy on screen because the hardest thing I think the hardest creative challenge has been these sort of dead spaces where there's nobody around you know because everything's obviously shut down and I think the team did such a great job of bringing energy to screen and and a lot of that is to do with Patricia and clues in the name I always say you know she's Patricia Bright and she's got a fantastic energy on screen she really has and it's a fascinating it's been a fascinating process you know because when you work with YouTube creators they're used to having all the agency you know she, she she's used to filming herself editing herself posting herself and and very successfully she's got three million subscribers on YouTube and obviously making television is a slightly different process and it's a, it's a toing and froing between us as producers and Patricia as host to kind of find that middle ground where she's giving herself to the process but also she's you know she she also has agency in it and was an exec producer at the same time so it's been really interesting and, I, and I'm I'm also 
I hate crowing about it because I kind of think it should be what we do every day. But I'm also really, really happy. The diversity on screen is fantastic. And the diversity off screen in the team that we put together is also fantastic. So it's a real statement of intent, actually, for, for inclusivity. That was the big takeaway from, from Edinburgh last week. Of, of course, there was a, a lot of chat about that and, and disability and, and things like that. I, I guess that's kind of what your company has been, been set up to to try and, and do a small part of addressing, right? Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, it's something we have been very considered and strategic about with putting the Gutsy Women team together. You know, there are eight fantastic directors making 10 episodes and, and diversity has been incredibly important to us. And it also presents its challenges because there aren't enough people coming through. Uh, 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 you know, the gene pool is not big enough to, su- to supply the demand that exists. And so it's not just about having an intent for exclusive inclusive inclusivity and diversity. It's also about we're going to have to take matters into our own hands. So one of the things that we're doing is we're trying to bring in um, people straight from college and really develop them and try and hang on to them. And that's tricky sometimes in a fr- freelance environment where, you know, people are jumping from project to project. But actually, if we're serious about it, it's the only way to do it is we've got to have a portion of our own homegrown talent coming through at the same time. What does uh, a, YouTube, uh, a YouTube creator or an Instagram influencer, like you say, who's used to having agency over their own thing, what do they get out of coming and working with a production company and with a commissioning editor that's providing notes, presumably? Why not just, you know, keep doing their own thing? What do they, what do they get out of it, if you see what I mean? Well, it's interesting that, you know, Patricia's been, I mean, she talks about it in the show. So, you know, she's been a, a, a YouTube, a very successful YouTuber for a decade. And and I think she's a she's a businesswoman. She is trained in uh, in accounts. She's an entrepreneur. And I think she's wanting to expand, you know, her her life and her career and I you know I think and no doubt she will and and I think it's about it's not about finding an alternative to YouTube I think it's about augmenting the work she does on her own platform um, with her own sort of media and television career so I think this will be uh, be, I'll be fascinated I'm I'm really excited for where she goes next in her own career and it's difficult to say what you're doing in three months time at the moment because who knows what the world looks like from one three months period to the next at the moment but three-year plan for the company I mean if we sat down in in, in three years time where do you want to have gone what do you want to have done you know what di- what's direction of travel for, for hidden light or in an ideal world you know I tell you I tell you one of the things that I think is really different between the UK and the US and that is the US is much more of a co-production market and what I mean by that is it's much more common and this is true of scripted but it's also true of unscripted in the US it's much more common for um, for co-productions between Indies you know one might bring an idea one might bring talent and so actually already, well, I mean, we've got four projects that we haven't announced yet that are all co-productions with other companies, one British and three American. And I, and I think it's really interesting. And, uh, you know, I, I, y- y- yes, there's an impact on bottom line because you're sharing revenues. So, you know, it needs to feel big and y- you need, you know, you need the volume and the tariffs to make it worthwhile. But actually, I think there's a lot of benefit in, you know, joining forces with other brilliant creators creatives and other talent to do your best work. So I can see that as a really big trend for us and people bringing work to us and us partnering with them in different ways. So I think that's great. I can't wait to see our first scripted project come to screen. You know, we've already announced Daughters of Kabani, which is Gail Lemon C-Mac's latest book, which was a follow-on to Ashley's War, which um, Reese Witherspoon is adapting to screen. So she's got great credentials as a writer, you know, and that's about the uh, incredible YPJ, the female Kurdish fighters who beat ISIS 
piece back in Kobani, which I think has got a particular resonance at the moment with everything that's going on with Afghanistan. So we're just gathering the writing team together for that and the director. So um, hopefully, you know, it's a long old game of script, isn't it? So it takes a lot longer, you know, and I'm not a particularly patient person, so I have to bite my lip a bit. But, um, <laughs> but you know, I'm hoping, you know, in three years time, I'm hoping we'll have, you know, two or three really big scripted shows on air, which will be really great. And and I would like, I would like to think that we found, well, I tell you what else I'd like, because I think it's interesting that people say, oh yeah, oh, Hillary and Chelsea Clinton. So um, you'll be doing quite political. It'll be quite earnest and quite political then. Well, no, actually it won't be. It'll be smart and substantial and surprising and everything will be entertainment first. And that means we won't shy away from current affairs and issues in the world, but you know, it's, it's a piece of television. It's a piece of storytelling and it's got to, like we said at the beginning, you know, it's got to do all of those things. So I would hope in three years time, what people will say is, oh, actually, this is so much more than I expected from Hidden Light. It's more fun. There's more light and shade. It's more surprising. It's more entertaining. And actually, we've got fingers in more pies than we could possibly have imagined. Stories First Productions is a Vancouver-based producer and creative consultancy with a focus on social change, set up by Chief Executive Lena Minifi in 2008 after she spent time in the digital sector and as a journalist working in Aboriginal news and current affairs. The company recently optioned Joshua Whitehead's award-winning indigi-queer novel Johnny Appleseed for the screen, with a four-part miniseries in the works looking to emulate recent hits of the UK such as It's a Sin and Fleabag. Minifee, whose credits include Indian Horse, The Grizzlies Movie, Monkey Beach and America Divided, spoke to Nico Franks about the reaction from buyers to the project, as well as the importance of storytelling sovereignty for Indigenous writers and producers. Indigenous film has always been made, and film about Indigenous people always been made. In fact, some of the first prints on film were... Uh, anthropologists using the medium to like record whether that be posed or not uh, indigenous uh, people on film there, there was real push I think uh, more diverse media in the U.S. during the civil rights movement and then it sort of trickled into Canada and then so you know films started happening in the 70s where indigenous people were sort of included in the process instead of just the process being about them and on them but when I opened up stories for productions uh not officially, but started using the name and started to, to build concepts and pitch ideas. It was 2008. And then the, the, the crash happened. People just weren't in, interested in Indigenous and Indigenous women topics uh, to any extent. These things are independent and small and usually just, you know, I did it, you know, making short films off my credit card and like those, those small things. And then um, I decided, you know, as, as many uh, women of colors and racialized women, indigenous women realize that they have to know absolutely everything in the industry in order to be respected at all in the industry. So I went back and um, did, an, uh, did my indigenous studies as well as uh, interactive new media, learning AR and VR, learning marketing and graphic design, <laughs> um, like having to learn every absolutely thing on a film so I wouldn't be questioned and I would know everything. And so that's why I think my work is split right now. And so I've lived back and forth between the U.S. and Canada because my nation's on either side in Alaska and B.C. And I really came back and um, started working on film marketing again uh, when I came back four, four and a half years ago because I was working as a digital strategist. And then I started to see like, oh, okay, our subject matter is still being needed and wanted, but they are still being directed by white men mostly. 
and now the change is like within the last year and a half during COVID, it's been like a 180. Like now, um, with a lot of advocacy and a lot of work behind the scenes, it may seem like it's it's naturally happening, but it's it's not. And it's not just George Floyd because there's people like Black Lives Matter happened. There's pre-George Floyd. I was in Minneapolis. Like there's so many people who were like Fano Castile and, and people who were brought together with Black Lives Matter. Um, so everyone's like saying in Canada, what's it? since George Floyd is the change. And I'm like, some people working in the, behind the scenes in the seventies trying to make it a more equitable and fair industry and, and more uh, representative of the diversity that's in Canada specifically and the stories that are from here. But the last year and a half has been absolutely incredible. And then even the last two months, like there's now a couple shows directed by native directors on Netflix and on streamers that have never, that would never have happened even like five years ago. What needs to happen to make sure that it's long-term change and you know deep-rooted rather than a handful of projects? A handful of projects and also, yeah, and beyond this idea of, of it's trendy to have authentic voices and new voices and that may dissipate uh, like the 60s and 70s. I think the sustainability in Canada is a bit different. Like we have organizations that are now working in order to make um, things equitable and fair for uh, diverse filmmakers and marginalized filmmakers, uh, which are don't exist in the U.S. Um, I think the U.S. is much more going on pop and media and what travels uh, in pop culture and on uh, and digital, which Native American issues have been taking up North American space for a long time. I've helped kind of do that in some ways as well. Everyone's been contributing to that. Canada has like the Indigenous Screen Office and now the Black Screen Office. And so they are advocates uh, for filmmakers um, making authentic work and advocating for like like two out of three above the line and honor our projects to be representative of uh, marginalized communities in order to get funding and, and putting in stipulations there. There's also film festivals that are saying like, we're no longer interested in sort of this, the white lens or sort of a, an outside perspective looking anthro. Anthropology or ethnologically at uh, issues, they really want to have people who are in the community. And I think through documentary and through so unscripted and scripted, you have a space where people really want to have access to these stories. They want to have access to them in a different way because they like learning about things that they don't know about and thinking through them. But there's also similar universal stories about humans everywhere and we can relate. And I don't think it's that far off to like have somebody on screen, you know, who's a woman from a different culture, a family from a different culture and see yourself in that. And so for the longest time, I think film marketers and distributors and uh, theatrical, people who release theatrical were so risk averse. <laughs> they just said, no, it's, it's only possible for people to see themselves within Caucasian or white characters. And I... Who, who made that up? I don't know who made that up, but somebody did and they and they they kept that rule in for a really long time. And do you feel like the the point around storytelling sovereignty uh, has kind of cut through and if it's going to be an indigenous story, the person telling that story should be from that background? I think authenticity is a buzzard right now, but I actually think it's one of the most important things is like complexity, nuance, authenticity in storytelling and story making. And I think people are desiring it right now. There's so much, there's, we've had a, 
a world and uh, environment of media like saturated by media that's false and fake and superficial. And I think that people are really looking for things that are deeper and more connected and, and human stories can resonate across cultures. Like Canada's quite diverse. We're significant here. And we always have taken, Canada's always taken like, you know, Britain where you're from as, as the standard of like what we prioritize ourselves on and where our values are from and like what our makeup is. We kind of like always are looking towards that British colonialism, but you know, we've been here for 14,000 years. The stories that are actually from here are, are from here. They're not going anywhere else. And if we don't make them, and it's a bit different when it comes to racialized indigenous stories. Like if we don't make indigenous stories from these languages and from these spaces, another country is not going to make them. No one else is going to go out there and make them. Is there a desire for the stories to not only focus on trauma? Yeah, this is a really, really, I think, happening conversation right now. That won't be a thing in like, I'd say eight to 10 years. We won't be discussing if white Caucasian stories have sadness and trauma with them. And the answer is that all stories of all sorts should be made. We always had Indigenous filmmakers submitting sad stories because we're screaming into the void. So a lot of things were being done, like about residential schools and about um, colonization or being interned in hospitals for tuberculosis or stories about land being taken away and forced sterilization. So a lot of these things were always being made by indigenous filmmakers. And right now there's some critique, I think, from a younger generation saying like, those are too triggering and those are too sad. But do we say that about other films so they don't get made? So I, I do think that there is a concept that has to be like Disney and happy to make this film or it has to be trauma and um, what they call trauma porn or to be made. But I think those are outliers. And I think that I don't think people are actually assessing it properly. I think if we did an audit or scan, I think they're more diverse than the people who would like to make stories right now would like to make that I'm talking to want to make comedy. I would like to make dramedy and art and things about dance and music and celebration, hope and, um, and cool stuff, like cool things, like there's a skateboard film coming out. Everyone gets to make a diverse realm and, and complex and nuanced stories of all sorts. And that's how it should be for indigenous people. We should be able to make all of it and, and not uh, be criticized if we, we have to talk about what's happening to us in, in a colonial perspective and what's happened to us in the past, because that kind of makes our communities right now and informs who we are. So tell me about Johnny Appleseed. So that was a book yeah. uh, that you optioned earlier this year. Just as a as a background, like right now when I was doing research, talking about just like kind of looking and scanning, most in, most Indigenous books that have been on the market now and doing well are have been optioned by non-Indigenous companies. And that's like the standard right now in Canada. So I've been very fortunate that um, working with Arsenal Press and working with Joshua Whitehead's um, literary agent that he really wanted to make sure that it went to an indigenous company. It, it's essentially like uh, a story about indigenous queer youth going to a city to try to make it um, and sort of discovering himself and sort of love for himself on the way. It To me, it's like really close to uh, the way I conceive it is really close to It's a Sin where you kind of are introduced to these familial uh, queer family that he moves to the city with and they were sort of rely on each other to quell their anxieties and sort of the trauma that's happened to them in the past and then um 
find independence. How's the reaction been since, you know, the announcement about optioning it in terms of buyer interest and I suppose international interest as well, potentially? I've been overwhelmed and and pleasantly surprised about the the interest. We're still we're still doing calls, of course, and we've been sort of talking to people about um, where it would best situate or fit. I think we're still we're still having conversations, of course, internally in Canada with broadcasters. There's a lot of things changing within the Canadian broadcast system, and broadcasters are now uniting and having memorandums of understanding to work together to release things. Uh, in the background, I don't think this has been happening before, specifically around Indigenous productions. So there'll be two broadcasters that are having a memorandum of understanding that would like to release um, shows at the same time. We're definitely working with the Indigenous broadcaster here and then the mainstream. So those things are happening at the same time that people are, are uh, that I'm we're pitching and inquiring. So that's exciting too. I think they realize they need to quilt together interests in order to sort of make these bigger productions. Um, and then we've been talking to we talked to like HBO Max, and they wanted um, they want us to sort of uh, get in touch with HBO International, who did It's a Sin. Um, there's been a a plethora of queer support from inside the film industry just reaching out so queer producers uh, musicians artists talent who've been like I'll we'll do whatever it takes how can we help you to make this we're we're really invested in seeing this happening so that that was really um that's really wonderful and it's still happening so I'm still getting through all the meetings and it took me about probably a month to get through all the meetings so yeah it's been overwhelming support and and real world too which is the BIPOC organization that I'm I've been a fellow of they've really been helping and and pushing that out there too and as interest and demand for indigenous stories and indigenous storytellers increases where do you see the place of indigenous broadcasters I suppose, what are potentially the, the dangers of more mainstream broadcasters? I think we, we're still, I think it's so new to have mainstream interested that I think it's something more, I think the industry, Indigenous industry is still figuring it out. I came up with Indigenous Broadcaster. That's the only reason why I got work. And like the program I went to, my first film program I went to was funded by the Indigenous Broadcaster that I moved to Vancouver for um, to take that film school program. So APTN, is is the reason why a lot of us knew how to work and work within the industry. Of course, they're just they are at a certain level, a certain level of funding that's been mandated in Canada that everybody sort of pays in order to get uh, to fund this broadcaster. I'd say that yeah, we wouldn't be anywhere without learning and doing our shows and being part of that with our indigenous broadcaster. There's, there wouldn't be an indigenous film industry right now without putting so much money into training and education and um, creators. So, but it's would be very, very difficult for them to support like a landmark series or something that was expensive and had a lot of expensive talent and, and more like a studio show, right? So our national broadcaster knows that too. And just filmmaking in a lot of way gets cheaper because of technology, but also gets more expensive as um, cities are, uh, used to filmmaking like Vancouver and Toronto, they everyone knows what the filmmaking prices are and they have an expectation that they're like sort of American standard pricing. So things become expensive at the same time that the technology becomes cheaper. So I, I think that there's a really, like being at a few markets now and a few international markets, a lot of people are looking 
and making sure that people are sort of quilting together their financing and quilting together their interests in different windows and different funders. And that's the only way sort of big shows can get done. Mainstream studios, distributors, agents, all have to sort of learn about supporting racialized and indigenous productions and pairing up and partnering uh, with indigenous broadcasters and, and black broadcasters or, um, and channels as well in order to make that happen. So because there's a lack of maybe knowing and understanding um, the subtleties within producing in these communities, they're really going to have to pair and partner and sort of lean on people who've been doing this for a while and, and understand those communities better. And um, I, I don't see anything going ahead just individually in Canada like it is in the States. Like right now there's like, as I said, a few, a few Netflix shows done by directors, but they're kind of, you know, done by bigger producers and LA producers. In Canada, it's going to be uh, difficult to do that. And I think there has to be more co-ventures. That's just that's the way it's going to be. And it, I think that they're going to have to be open to listening and learning to people who've already been in the industry and doing it, understanding that it's not it's not status quo how you make these shows. So you have to kind of bring care, and you have to be, uh, bring as a complexity nuance, um, have an understanding like a cultural sensitivity understanding and training uh, on your sets and production as well. You mentioned uh, non-Indigenous owned production companies working with Indigenous writers. This whole industry is about your uh, resume, your past, what you've done before, your credit rating, <laughs> and like, and uh, the trust that that, and so you can prove that you are able to to work at certain levels. So there are those those pairings. I think they're quite more. As I said, like we have, I think Indigenous Screen Office, we have um, now policy. Uh, they put out a 82-page uh, document about how to work uh, with Indigenous communities and how to put Indigenous stories on screen. They've been fighting for, again, like two out of three above the line to be Indigenous on um, Indigenous content shows. Uh, the U.S. doesn't have this at all, so um, I think a lot of people will be looking to us. And Canada's really been looking to Australia uh, for, at their policy. When, we put out the, when ISO put out the 82-page document, they were looking at the policies in Australia about um, IP and cultural rights. So they, Australia is a, a bit a bit ahead of us, um, and so are the Maori, and uh, they were next. And then America doesn't, I know, I don't know if they'll ever get in policy. It's it's free market, and you know, it's just basically it, filmmaking is a lot more, you know, uh, corporate and free market and capital where we're uh, socially funded. Mark Proctor and Steve Jones, who previously worked together at US factual giant Discovery, launched UK independent producer Big Little Fish at the end of 2019, just a few months before the global COVID-19 pandemic struck. Proctor was formerly an exec producer and commissioning editor at Discovery Networks, where he brokered deals for international productions of formats including Say Yes to the Dress, The Great Bake Off and Don't Tell the Bride. He spoke to Clive Whittingham about securing Big Little Fish's first commission during lockdown, taking part in UK-based independent producers training scheme Indie Lab, and the impact Discovery Plus has made upon the market. I'm Mark Proctor. I'm the co-founder of Big Little Fish Television. Myself and Steve Jones launched the unscripted production company in 2019. 
We are 100% independent, fueled by our own good ideas and sometimes our own money. Um, so what sort of programs um, will we will we know you guys for and, and uh, where are you looking to take the company genre wise? So we launched uh, in 2019. So to date, we've um, only delivered a 10 part series for Discovery uh, Quest. So that was premiered on Discovery Plus in July. So currently that's the only Big Little Fish production that's airing, but it's something that we're incredibly proud of because it's our first commission uh, and we made it throughout the whole of lockdown and the pandemic with very little hiccups and you know the show's done exceptionally well both on the video on demand platform for discovery and the free to air channel quest and then in production we've got a series of specialist history documentaries a true a mini true crime series for a uk broadcaster and for an international svod those are unannounced at the moment and, and we've got a couple of um paid developments that we're doing at the moment so it very it, it really feels that after two years and you know 18 months of a really challenging period in in the world it feels like we're coming out the end of this and actually you know we consider ourselves quite a success story let's talk about that actually because having launched the company in 2019 i'm sure you had all sorts of uh, grand plans and you know stuff you wanted to get done in your first 18 months and three years and then obviously 2020 happened how um how was that for for you guys as a new startup well it's interesting i think actually we consider ourselves quite fortunate of the way that we've come out of the pandemic but the, you know like everybody it really disrupted all of our plans as you say we we went to real screen in January 2020, full of hope, launching our brand new company. We spoke to lots of international networks and domestic networks and had a lot of interest in, um, you know, some of our international appealing documentary series. And we, you know, we thought this is going to be easy. Uh, and then, you know, we we were on the cusp of, you know, signing for offices and we were in discussions with with these networks about doing these, you know, rather complex pre-sales and international buying. And then obviously March happened and and it and it all disappeared. So like everyone, I think we were we were slightly bereft in the early summer months. Um, and I spent most of my time homeschooling my child whilst also trying to develop ideas and work with Steve remotely to get the company back up and running it was really tough and really challenging but we you know like a lot of our peers and you know more established production companies we didn't have complex furloughs to worry about we didn't have physical offices so actually you know we were able to pick ourselves up quite well and gear up to try and work out actually where do we go from here so we we access to all of the commissioners was brilliant i have to say you know from bbc itv to Discovery Channel 4. A lot of people have said it before that, you know, it was a real leveler and actually gave access to, to the networks. Um, and, and we found that. And actually, a lot of the, the commissioners that we spoke to were very generous with their time and their steers on where we should take our developments. And, you know, Discovery, obviously, we have connections because Steve and I were both ex-employees of Discovery. And I've subsequently, since leaving in 2017, made shows for them as a freelancer. Um, you know, they were hugely supportive of us and gave us our first commission, the 10-part series, Ball Mucky. And it really, I think that has, has saved our company, you know, quite frankly, uh, without that, we wouldn't have been able to continue. It hasn't, of course, it, you know, it's not a massive cash cow because making television is expensive. And, you know, when you're launching your 100% independent 
fully owned production company, you know, the, the, there isn't uh, much money in it and the margins are tight. And we we haven't made a, a, a huge amount of money out of this ourselves. But I look back at that year and think that if I was still in the freelance market, uh, you know, trying to get an exec producer job or a edit producer job or a producer director job or, you know, any kind of content creation work as a freelancer, I, I think, you know, I would have really struggled. And so as hard as it's been actually launching our production company, and we can talk about the challenges of running a, a series remotely in a minute but I, I feel you know if we hadn't have done this um, I think both Steve and I would have had even greater challenges like the freelance employees and, and production community faced and, and we were incredibly fortunate that we were lucky enough to, to get that first commission from Discovery. Lots of development is that yeah, that's the thing I heard a lot you just get basically production companies went into development mode for a prolonged period of time because you couldn't produce anything but so it does sound like you got your, your series sort of wrapped up in remotely like you say yeah well I, I think so i mean we developed uh, we looked at actually you know what can you make within the confines of lockdown and the pandemic and you know no physical offices and uh and so we like a lot of people developed ideas that were uh pandemic covid friendly but we weren't established then you know to be fair to <laughs> although all of these lovely commissioners were giving us their time and access we were effectively two blokes running a production company from their bedrooms <laughs> and we hadn't delivered it anything and like i said we had a relation existing relationship with discovery and they trusted us and they gave us our first commission for which we will forever be grateful but you know it's really hard to persuade other commissioners who's who you've never worked for in the pandemic that actually we're the guys that can deliver you you know a three-part archive based program so whilst we were developing and developing ideas that were covid friendly we were finding it hard to actually get more business but off the back of born mucky and off the back of continuing with those relationships and taking part in the likes of Indie Lab and, you know, just basically trying to forge relationships with commissioners. You know, we have been fortunate, as I say, that we've got three factual projects in production at the moment for different UK networks and, and SVODs uh, and two paid developments and then, you know, lots of other content that's still with sitting with commissioners. That's the, um, That's been the thing, isn't it, about this? It's It has been possible as a production company to produce remotely and, like you say, the commissioners, if anything, are more accessible, but it's more difficult to get your foot in the door as a newbie, isn't it? Because they, obviously in a situation like that, they're going to go with whoever's got the track record that they know that can produce produce it which is the opposite of what television is meant to be doing right that seems to have been the big drawback of course but I, I you know I straddled both camps because I was uh, commissioning same as Steve Steve commissioned for Sky and I commissioned for Discovery so I understand the challenges that broadcasters face and you know at a time like that where you're entering into a brand new workflow and you don't know whether uh, the show that you commissioned remotely is going to be delivered you want to go with the production companies that are bigger more established or that you've worked with or you've got personal relationships with so i don't uh, I, I don't look back on that part of the lockdown and bemoan the fact that we didn't get more because i sort of understand that actually it's a challenging situation for everybody and you're going to go where you feel most comfortable as we get back to whatever the new normal is we've been supported brilliantly by a number of commissioners and and uh, channel execs that we haven't yet worked with so uh the shows that are in production at the moment that you know they're looking great and uh and we're hopeful hopeful of repeat business after we deliver these but um, you know, it, it takes it takes a while to nurture those relationships, and that's what we spent our time doing over over lockdown. What takeaways, permanent takeaways, out of the? Lo- are you just looking forward to just getting back? Like, to, is it all over now for a production company? Is it back to normal? Are you looking forward to getting back to whatever this new normal is, 
or are there actually takeaways and things that you learned during that lockdown that you will carry on and wherever we are with this? There's definite takeaways. And I think lots of producers are talking about how they've managed to have a better work-life balance. I think that's something that's uh, very clear. I mean, I can't wait to get back into an office because I live in Twickenham in a small house that doesn't have a room. So I, you know, for me to actually work. So, you know, I'm personally looking forward to trying to get back into some kind of normal working life where I can go to an office. But, you know, I don't I don't see that anybody is going to want to do that five days a week like they used to do. So I think it's an interesting, you know, that everyone's talking about the hybrid model. I think that's definitely something that's that's going to continue. So we we were producing this 10 part series over over, you know, most of lockdown. Down. Um, and it was all done remotely from, you know, casting through to final posted mix. You know, everybody was doing it from their own homes. It was incredible that everyone pulled together on that production team and got that show made with very little hiccups. We had a, you know, series of COVID protocols that actually, you know, ensured that everyone was safe. Everyone was in a bubble for six weeks. There's very little, you know, movement. Everyone was regularly tested and things like that. So, um, you know, we, we managed to, to put in place, you know, some incredible protocols that made sure that we made that show successfully. But what's great about it is that we had staff from Cardiff, from Manchester, from Bristol, from Surrey, from London, from, you know, we even had an, ed- uh, uh, an editor in Edinburgh at one point. And I think that's something that's really interesting is that when we talk about nations and regions and, you know, we suffer the bur- the heavy burden of being a London-based production company, um, what's really interesting is that actually if we looked at where we were spending our money for that production we would in part qualify as a nations and regions production and uh, but just being able to access talent in scotland in wales in manchester north of england etc you know and and not have to have them come in the office and be able to give them access to the edits remotely you know if editors want to continue in this uh, working from home workflow. I definitely see that that's, that's something that could, could absolutely be part and parcel of production. I mean, it was all managed brilliantly by, by a post-production facility, but I, yeah, I, I mean, it's just yeah, being able to attract talent from all over the UK was something that actually, you know, we never really thought about that before March, 2020. And I think that's something that we will think about. We have a section on our website called Three Year Plan, and it always makes me laugh because who knows where we're going to be three months from now. So never mind, uh, never mind three years. But as we, as you sort of not restart, but as we come out the other side of this pandemic, and you, you, you you've got things in the pipeline of your company. What's the direction of travel? What sort of television have you guys come out of your commissioning role into production to make? What do you want to be known for, either genres or, or styles of programming? Well, I think you know we're specialist factual through to factual entertainment and everything in the middle. You know we're out and out a factual unscripted production company i think um inherently because of our international experience working for um steve's worked overseas in australia we both work for discovery networks you know we have a global outlook so i think most of our content that we are developing at the moment we're looking at it as you know with one eye on does it travel will it resonate internationally uh, is it a format that could sell and so i think you know that's definitely where we are developing into and you know the the kinds of genres that, that that we know there's an appetite for at the moment you know paranormal engineering science crime and investigation 
history, biography, all that kind of content that, that we know sells, we're definitely uh, developing into. But we're also really interested in new technology. I mean, I, I'll be honest, I'm a bit of a Luddite. Um, however, l- you know, looking at lots of new ways of making and, you know, experiencing content is really interesting. Um, so, we, we, you know, one part of our business is looking at looking at that. And, you know, we're entering into a period, I think, certainly over the next couple of years, where there's a real need for content and long form content and good quality content. There might be a shortage of cash. So, you know, how can we benefit on those opportunities, you know, with all the new VOD systems that are starting up, all the new, you know, international channels that that, that, that need feeding. Um, so we're looking at, you know, kind of disruptive plans of how we as big little fish can become content creators rather than just producers for hire or paid to produce certain shows. So our three-year plan is, is exactly that. We, you know, we, we like I said, we we consider ourselves hugely fortunate and successful to come out of pandemic with a slate of programs in production and in development. And now we're definitely looking to grow. I think the next six months we're hoping to have investment. And that's one of the things that's been hugely beneficial as part of the indie lab having access to the great and the good of commissioning and you know inspirational people in in production communities and stuff has been great but you know the actual nuts and bolts of making sure that our business plan is robust and that our figures stack up and that we're investable that's been the real benefit of taking part in in indie lab and i think you know what we're hoping for over the next six months is to open those conversations again because obviously uh 2020 was pretty dead for investing in production companies Companies. But, you know, as we start to come out of the other side, I'm hopeful that, you know, we've got a turnover that's impressive. We've got, you know, contacts with networks and a slate of programming and a slate of developments that hopefully will, you know, attract some investment. There are non-UK uh, audience. Can you just expand a little bit on what Indie Lab is, what benefits it's brought to you as a company and how it's changed from, well, you, you weren't part of it before the pandemic, but how Indie Lab has operated when we've all been locked in our back bedroom. So Indie Lab is a scheme run in the UK that selects 15 independent production companies, up and coming independent production companies to um, you know, nurture and develop them over a three-month period. And um, the guys at Indie Lab, led by Victoria Powell, um, you, they give you access to the great and the good in commissioning and in legals and admin and production management and really make you analyze your business model, your business plans, you know, where you want to be as a business over the course of the next 12 months and five years. And w- we've used that platform uh, or, or that experience to really dig deep into actually what we want to get out of this and where we want to be in five years time and you know having been part of that program uh we've definitely come out of it feeling that we're much more investable than we were when we first went in there i I think we had you know a lot of the pieces in place but it's just really helped us get everything together to make sure that we can you know pitch it properly and present it properly to potential investors so it's been a it's been a really valuable experience for us um in most years it's all done in person and i think from speaking to peers who have done it in the past you know what's really valuable is that at the end of the 
those sessions everyone goes down the pub and makes friends and you've got networks you know a network of contacts for life but sadly obviously during these last 18 months it's all been done digitally and you know there's people on that course that we've never met in the same room I mean there's people who worked for us over the last 18 months that I've never met so you know um, but it's been really good for us and and we're really positive about what's what's come out of it It, and it's a great I, I would highly recommend it it's been a great experience and from this point on we're hoping that we can use the skills that we've learned from there not just to increase our business but also make us much more investable to uh, allow us to to grow the simple question is how much of a game changer has discovery plus been for companies like um like yours and and just to expand on that slightly quite a lot of the genres that you mentioned that you guys were keen to produce in fit very well at the old discovery cable nets but discovery now commissions more for this global streaming service which can be good because it's bigger budgets and discovery now commissioning sort of stuff that they probably weren't when um, when you were there, but does it take away the chances from the cable nets? I just wondered if you sort of had thoughts on, you know, good or bad, on what sort of a game changer Discovery Plus has been for for factual indies. Uh, I think the explosion in VOD in general is only a good thing, and you know, Drive the distributor did a, a really brilliant report uh, recently on on you know the opportunities in in the VOD, particularly the AVOD space, um, and that's something that we're very keen on on exploring um, as a as a new company. Discovery in general, um, you know, Victoria Noble, Charlotte Reed, and Simon Downing and Claire Laycock, you know, they've they've been really supportive of, of me and Steve in general. So the fact that there is another platform there to hopefully get bigger, better content, it, it's a great opportunity for us. And, and we're hopeful that we will be able to get, you know, shows away or a big brand away. And, you know, it, it, the thing about Discovery, and, and a lot of producers will tell you this, is that, you know, when you discuss the kind of right situation with Discovery, it was always a bit of a contentious issue. But actually, because they are so supportive of brands and returning brands, you know, as long as a company has a, a kind of mixed economy of, you know, owned IP and producer for higher content it feels like it's a really good good bit of business for us and and they're very supportive and they're great to work with and we're, we're hopeful that we can get a lot more out of them obviously but the only thing that we're finding at the moment if if i if i'm truly honest and it's not just discovery i think it's channels and it's um other vods in general w- one of the things that we are careful of is not taking on too many one-offs you know, or two parters, or you know, which are effectively one-offs, because you know they're so intense and la- you know labor-intensive that obviously we're not going to look a gift horse in the mouth. But this, the, the the trend at the moment seems to be for these noisy cut-through one-offs. And whilst they tend to be a reasonable tariff and noisy, you know, if you have three or four of those happening at the same time, it's almost like having three or four series. But they don't carry the the same kind of economies of scale that we would normally have with a with a series. So that that's the only thing that I, I, you know, that I'm looking at VODs and going, all of these things are great, but you know, where's the returnability and where's the where's the economies of scale for small producers? It's fine if you're raw, you know, it's fine if you're one of the one of the big boys, but. For us, we're mindful that if we have three or four single films in production, they are quite labour intensive. And that tends to be the trend at the moment is just commissioning singles. Any other particular trends or or things that you've got your eye on as uh, as we move through? No, the I, I mean, uh, look, on trends, uh, yeah, I sort of I put the VO, VOD singles as trends in there. You can keep that. But I did think about trends and, and, and you can you can have this or not. Um, I'm a bit I'm a bit grumpy at the returnable returning format, you know, reviving an old format seems to be a trend and as a new producer without a stable of tried and tested formats 
in our locker it's uh, it, it, it is getting on my goat a little bit <laughs> that's all for this episode but you can listen to plenty more discussion by tuning into our c21 fm internet radio station the podcast will be back next friday and in the meantime stay safe and up to date with all the latest international tv industry news and views by following c21 online on mobile and social media my name's jonathan webdale thanks for listening